0: So that was 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had a trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outposts and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, Gilead. Saul remained at Gigal, and the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered, them up, offered up the burnt offering. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gigal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600.
1: Thanks for the reading, Sam. Um, we're continuing in our series in 1 Samuel, as you've heard. Uh, my name is Rod. If you are visiting or new, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, it's great that you're here as we continue to look at God's Word together. Um, it's a, a sad passage in terms of the life of Saul, but it's a challenging one too as we reflect on some of these principles for our own lives. So will you pray with me? ask that God will help us as we look at his Word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight. We thank you that you have granted us your Word, which is living and active, and judges even the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts we pray tonight that you might be at work in us by your spirit, that you might challenge us afresh, that you might help us to see our need to respond rightly to you. Lord, do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Leaders of big businesses are usually looked at in terms of their performance. That's the dominant criteria as to whether they're promoted or they're rejected and sacked. And of course, uh, financial institutions have faced um, a lot of damaging claims over the past few months. We had the Banking Royal Commission, uh, which looked at the four big banks and a number of other major financial players. And what we saw in that was a commission that was really looking at the character of the leaders and the bad culture within some of those financial institutions. But with so much bad press about them, so many damning accusations that came out through the commission, very few heads rolled after this. Why? Well, because financial institutions generally don't care about the character of people. They're wanting profits. Now, that perhaps sounds harsh, but let me point out a few facts. The only one of the four big banks that did anything in the light of the Royal Commission in terms of sackings was the NAB, and that was because they came out the worst in terms of the Royal Commissioners' comments. Uh, The CEO, Andrew Thorburn, the chairman, Ken Henry, they did resign after the Royal Commission, but not before they had defended the fairly poor culture within it. They admitted to very little when they were interviewed as part of the Royal Commission. It was only external pressure afterwards that saw them removed, and even then they weren't sacked. They resigned and stepped down. And the reason that it happened in terms of the CEO Andrew Thorburn was because the profits were low, really, in the end for NAB. It was not so much about his character, but the performance again of the company. You see, at the annual general meeting last year of the NAB, they voted in the greatest corporate protest vote ever in Australia, 88% of them rejecting the remuneration report of the company. Profits were low. They refused to give 2.1 million dollars that was to go to the CEO. Don't feel too sad for him. he still took home 4.3 million that year. Performance is the thing that matters, you see. It's the same in politics, isn't it? If somebody loses an election, it's very unlikely that they'll get to be the leader to the next election and have a second attempt. It's the same in sporting teams. If a team keeps losing over and over, then the coach may be dumped. the captain may lose his role. But if they're winning, everything will stay the same. The thing that is exceptionally rare in any of these fields is for a leader to be removed because of character. But as we come to this point in 1 Samuel today and we discover the newly chosen King Saul is being rejected, we find that God rejects him on the basis of his character. He's still going to reign for many years, In fact, he's very successful as a military leader. He has lots of great victories with God's help. But God finds that his character falls short. And so as we look at chapters 13 to 15 tonight, we need to consider what is God looking for in a leader? What is God looking for in a leader? That brings us to the first answer to that question. And that is someone who trusts God and waits on his timing. Someone who trusts God and waits on his timing. Have a look again at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13, where we see the occasional skirmishes with the Philistine army turn into all-out war as Saul's son Jonathan lights the fuse. Verse 3, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul. We told the verse before that in verse 2 that um, there's only 3,000 men in the Israelite army. 2,000 are hanging out with Saul, and the other 1,000 with his son Jonathan. So Jonathan's got 1,000 men at his disposal. It wasn't a big deal for him to beat a small outpost. Maybe it only had 10 or 15 men there. But that small victory that he has over the Philistines has far-reaching effects because they then mobilise their entire army in response. And we're told that they turn up with innumerable soldiers, 6,000 charioteers to ride their 3,000 chariots, and there they come just round the bend from King Saul and his 2,000 men with him. Now, it has to be said the effectiveness of their chariots in the hill country that they were in was pretty limited, uh, but this was a show of military might. Uh, the Israelites didn't have any chariots. They wouldn't have any till later, much later, under King Solomon. In fact, they had very few swords at this point, and so they were greatly intimidated by this show of military hardware. And perhaps it's no surprise then that absolute panic sets into Saul's troops, And in typically understated style, we read in verses 6 and 7 how his army just starts evaporating. It's almost comical. They're hiding behind bushes. They're jumping under rocks. They're, They're diving down wells. I'm not sure how it protects you if you're in the bottom of a well. But they're all trying to flee the Philistine army. Get away as quick as we can. And it'd be comical if it weren't such a serious situation. Israelite's king is under threat here. King Saul has very few troops left at this point. It's like an end-of-the-world reaction. And yet God has said that Saul is his chosen king and that through Saul, he will win victories for Israel, that he will defeat their enemies. And so you can imagine Saul feeling under great pressure at this point, probably doubting God's promise that he will use him as the chosen leader. And it's in the light of that tense backdrop that we have Saul's actions in verses 8 to 10, which are really the key of chapter 13. See, in verse 8, with the few troops that are left with him quaking in fear and they too beginning to scatter after waiting a whole week for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice and then to seek the Lord's counsel, have some guidance before they go into battle with the Philistines, Saul gives up waiting. He, he can't wait any longer. He can't handle it. He's losing all his army. And he decides he'll step into Samuel's tr- uh, shoes, that he'll play priest and prophet. He'll conduct the sacrifice and seek God's help before they go into battle. Of course, no sooner has he done this than Samuel arrives. Samuel asks Saul what he is doing. And then Saul's reply in verses 11 and 12 comes. And I I think really as we read this the first time, it's easy to feel sorry for him. We think, well, he had no choice, didn't he? Like it's, it's getting so difficult. He's just wanting some action to take place. It's very clear in our passage that Saul knew he had to wait. He had to wait for God's prophet. It was only through Samuel that God would speak to Israel. And Samuel did appear on the seventh day as promised, not first thing in the morning, as Saul was hoping, but he did arrive. And so Saul had rejected the prophet's word. He'd rejected God's instructions. And his actions were born out of fear. He showed a lack of trust. He wasn't willing to wait upon God's timing. Instead, he takes matters into his own hands. He lacks faith. It takes action and things unravel. I know, have you ever been uh, promised something, you just had to follow, trust the instructions, but you couldn't really wait and do that and so you tried to work it out yourself and did it your own way? I have a habit of doing that with uh, travel instructions, driving instructions, always think I know better, I've got the map in my head. And that sometimes works in Sydney, but it's not so good if you're overseas and you can't speak the language. And so in 1999, my wife and I had the opportunity to be in Europe and we started our trip in Rome, and we spoke, we spoke very little Italian. <laughs> and we knew that we had to get to a certain motel from the airport. We knew we had to catch a certain train. Remember, this is pre-Google Maps days. We couldn't do it all on our phone. We had to use real things on paper. And we were walking around the train station thinking, OK, well, once we get there, we've got to catch the right bus. We got onto the right bus miraculously, but we really had no idea where to get off. We didn't know where the street was, how long were we supposed to be on the bus. And so we did what you might do, and we asked a couple of Italian ladies on the bus if they could help us. This is the street, we're trying to go to this motel. They did all those polite things and nodded at us and sort of pointed, and we were sort of hopeful that they were giving us instructions. It was really unclear. We're thinking, well, maybe we'll get to the street and they'll say, get off now, that would be really helpful. They'd given us a name of a street. We eventually got to a street that looked like it and the bus trip had gone on and on and we thought we must have missed it. Maybe this is it. We've just got to get off. And so we get off the bus with all of our luggage for six weeks and we've walked about a kilometre down the road and we realise we've got off way too early. And here we are with all these bags thinking, why didn't we just wait? And it would have been fine. We eventually got a taxi and it was like, literally a minute or two down the road. The taxi driver didn't even charge us. We were so close. And that if only we trusted and waited, God would have worked things out. Now, it's one thing to distrust travel instructions. It's another matter to not listen to God's prophet who speaks God's very words. And here's fearful Saul thinking he can strengthen Israelites' chance in this imminent war by just going through the right rituals. Look, it doesn't matter if it's the prophet, it's just a sacrifice, anyone can do it, surely. These must be the things that are going through his head. Why else would he act in this manner? But the king was never to act independently of the prophets or take on their role. And so he's failed to trust God. It's a serious issue, even if he didn't see it. And massive consequences are now going to flow from this. Have a look. Samuel passes on God's judgment in verses 13 and 14. This is what God thinks. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now again, I think as we read this, the penalty seems so severe, doesn't it? I mean, Saul's trying his best, or so it seems, but he's told he won't have a dynasty. His son will not be king. He won't reign after him. What Samuel is at pains to establish here is the essential difference between Israel's monarchy and all the other pagan nations around them. In Israel, the Lord God is king. He rules. And the human king is to follow his word. He is to wait on his time. He is to trust him. And so if the king, the human king, acts independently, then that will disqualify him before God. God's looking for leaders that will trust him and wait. Now, it's easy to poke the finger at Saul, isn't it? But so often we can fall into the same thing. We can find ourselves going through the motions, as it were, spiritually, thinking that somehow that will please God. You know, if the external things look okay, God will be happy. It doesn't matter about what's going on in the inside. But it does. God looks at the heart, He's concerned with our character. And so often these things creep into our lives when things are bleak, when things are hard. We tend to fall back on our own resources, think we know better, we're going to work this out. Can't wait on God. And then we find ourselves in a hole, as Saul does. We have to believe that God can deliver in any situation. So a massive Philistine army is there, and his army is shrinking, and he has very few swords. That's the perfect scenario. God can win those battles, don't worry. But Saul looks at it from a human perspective and thinks, God can't do the impossible, but you see, faith, not fear, is the appropriate response of not only a leader of God's people, but of any disciple. Look, I don't know what you're going through tonight, but perhaps you've got a really difficult situation in your family. Perhaps things are really tense at the moment, or there's some broken relationship that's creating a lot of pain for you. Maybe work is a disaster at the moment, Things are really difficult with your colleagues or the boss is making your time there really tough. Well, What I want to say to you is to trust God, wait on him, prayerfully depend on God. Don't take matters into your own hand. Don't think you're wiser than the God in whom you trust, who is the ruler of the universe. Show faith in him, knowing that he will work good for those who Who follow him. That brings me to a second answer to this question. What is God looking for in a leader? He's looking for someone who fully obeys his word, who fully obeys his word. You see, after Saul's dismal failure in trusting God in chapter thirteen, his son Jonathan is a hero in chapter fourteen. He does everything right. He he leads Israel in a miraculous victory over the Philistines. There's a wonderful contrast between the son and the father. Jonathan trusts God's power. He steps out in faith. Meanwhile, Saul is inactive, showing his lack of faith in God's power. And I guess the question comes can things get any worse for Saul? Yes, they can. There's chapter 15. What follows is just a complete disaster. In chapter 13, the promise was that he would not have a dynasty. In chapter 15, Saul himself is directly rejected as king by God. And by the end of that chapter, not only has he lost God's approval as the king of the nation, but he has also lost God's word. He's refused to listen to God's word and follow it. And so God is going to withdraw his voice. Samuel says to him, I am not going to be with you any longer. Samuel goes home to Ramah and he says, I'm not going to be with you for the rest of your life, Saul. I'm not going to see you again. How did it come to this? Well, it all comes from a battle with the Amalekites. Have a look with me. Um, God tells Saul through Samuel to destroy the Amalekites completely. It's due to their past sins in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15. He was not to spare a person or an animal. When they'd first come into the Promised Land, the Amalekites had waylaid God's people. and God had been saving up his judgment on the Amalekites for nearly 300 years. And Israel was now to be his instrument of judgment upon them. And so Saul is given his marching orders. And to begin with, it looks like he's acting correctly. He goes straight to the task. And in fact, he leads the Israelites in an amazing victory with God's help. And it looks like finally Saul is doing things right. Until we hear in the mop-up of the battle that he hasn't quite followed through. Saul in chapter 15 is Mr. 80%. He does most of it. He never quite gets there. Have a look at verse 9 with me. Here's his failure summarised. But Saul and the army spared Agag... It's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So I think it's hard for us to take this in because we think, well, isn't this a harsh instruction from God? But this is a situation of holy war where God is using Israel in judgment against this group's... This people's sin. And yet Saul chooses not to follow God's word to the letter. He'll just do most of it. And the assessment in verse 11 is so damning from the Lord. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. And when Samuel confronts Saul about the situation after the battle, he actually says initially, no, I did everything. He's actually in a very sort of happy mood. He, he greets Samuel and says, wow, I did it all. But, well, you know, I completely followed God's instructions. And Samuel's like, hang on. And he just helps him with a reminder. What, what is that bleating that I hear in the background? What are those cattle lowing that I can hear? You, you didn't finish the job. And even then, Saul's not repentant. He makes excuses. In fact, excuse after excuse. To begin with, he says, oh, look, no, no, that was deliberate. Like, you know, we kept those um, cattle and sheep because we're going to do a sacrifice to the Lord. So they're just set aside to sacrifice to God. Samuel says, well, that wasn't the instruction. And he goes on to offer God's assessment as just being complete disobedience. And even still, he protests his innocence and in the end says, well, look, no, it was, you know, it was the army and the people. You know, they pressured me into doing this. They wanted to do this. And so I gave in to them. Excuse after excuse, everyone but him. And eventually Samuel brings him to the point in verse 25 of acknowledging his sin. But it doesn't seem that he's actually truly repentant. Why? Because his concern at that point is not that he has disobeyed the God who gave him instructions, who will judge and holds his life in his hand, He is fearful that he will lose face in front of the people. And so he begs Samuel not simply to pray for his forgiveness, but please, Samuel, will you come with me to worship God now in front of the people so I won't lose status before their eyes? He's worried about the praise of men, but not God's judgment. Well, again... We can be the same. We may not have had a direct instruction to go into battle. We've got God's word in black and white before us day and night. And we can have it and know it, and we can be pretty good at being Mr. 80% as well. Well, you know, I, I do most of the things that God tells me to do. There's a story of a frontier a settlement, true story from uh, the west of the US as people moved westward. It was a small uh, town that had been established in a lumbering business, cutting down trees, floating the logs down the river. But they were so keen to hear God's Word in this frontier town that they said, look, we're going to build a church and we're going to call a minister here so that we can hear uh, the voice of God as the Bible is preached. And so they did so. They built a church. They called a minister. Everything went well to begin with. They loved having him there. Until the minister worked out as he was watching their activities during the week, that they were stealing logs from the village upstream. They were floating their logs down, but they were clawing them into the bank and then cutting off the end of the logs that had the stamp and then putting their own fresh stamp on it and then sending them further downstream. And the minister was horrified at this, and so he prepared a forceful sermon for the next Sunday entitled, Thou Shalt Not Steal. And he got to the end of it, and there's this huge line of people congratulating him on this wonderful sermon. It's so great that you preach God's word to us. And he thought, well, maybe I'm getting through. Maybe they're listening to that. And so he went and observed what happened in the next week. Exactly the same again. He couldn't believe it. So his sermon was entitled the following week, Thou shalt not cut off the end of thy Neighbor's logs. And they ran him out of town. So keen to hear the voice of God, but not if it's going to challenge what they're doing, not that bit that they should feel free to do otherwise on. Well, we can be the same, can't we? Saul's reluctant repentance was to no avail because he was told three times by Samuel in chapter 15, your kingship has been taken away. In case you didn't hear it, your kingship has been taken away. Your kingship has been taken away. First time it happens, verse 23. Notice how Samuel puts it. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And this is the sad summary of Saul's kingship. So much promise at the start. But it brings us to two applications for ourselves today. Firstly, I think it's really clear in chapters 13 to 15 that this experiment, if we can call it that, with King Saul is a failure. It's such a disappointment. He just doesn't live up to the expectations. He looks great on the outside, he's a head taller than everybody else, he can win battles, he's great as a military leader but we're left longing for somebody that will actually obey God's word, somebody that won't keep failing the tests. The problem, of course, is that this will be the first of innumerable times that we're going to be disappointed in the Old Testament. This is the first king of so many, and every king that will follow him will be likewise disappointing. Even David, who's going to follow, who is the king after God's own heart, he too will let God's people down. But later in David's reign, God promises that there will be somebody that comes in the line of David, a son of David who will have an eternal kingdom, somebody who will obey God's word, who will live up to what God expected of his king. And of course, it points us forward to God's son, the Lord Jesus. And when he came, he perfectly obeyed the Father's word. Remember as he started his public ministry... He was taken out by the Spirit into the wilderness and he was tested by the devil three times, tempted. Each time he answered with the Father's word, quoting scripture, repelling all these temptations. He did not fail. And throughout his life, it was the same. Jesus could say towards the end of his ministry in John's Gospel, in John 14, so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father Has commanded me. Exactly. And the purpose of his life was to be a sin bearer, to die as our substitute. That was the Father's will before all creation. And so Jesus perfectly obeys this. He follows the will of the Father to the nth degree. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, as the hour of his suffering has come, and he thinks about all that is before him, asking that this cup may be taken from him. In the end, his prayer is, not my will, but your will be done. The perfectly obedient king. And so the Apostle Paul could write later in Philippians 2, Jesus became obedient even to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the king that we're waiting for. He's the one worthy of following He's the one whose words we must always follow. He is the one through whom all the Old Testament looks forward to, our rescuer whom we must place our faith in. But so often in this life, even believers, but certainly others, will just place their faith elsewhere. So often we want to place our faith in ourselves, as if that can fix the problem. Some friends of mine uh, went on a trip to Egypt and France a number of years ago, and they were flying into Cairo, and so they thought they'll take the national carrier. And as they were coming into the descent, uh, they suddenly started getting really worried as they looked around at the people on the flight. Because as the descent was announced, all these people started going into these rituals and doing things all around them, and they're thinking, they're freaking us out. Why should we be worried that we're going to crash? And when the plane finally landed, it landed to unanimous applause, which they found equally disconcerting. Now, I think partly that was cultural, but I imagine I would have been somewhat worried at that point too. But imagine a person thinking that you can determine the successful landing of a plane by maybe sitting in the aisle seat, because that's what you always do, or by saying a certain thing, chanting a certain phrase, Surely, if there's going to be success, then our faith has to be in the object or the person that determines the outcome. And so, on a flight, it, the plane has to be not faulty. The pilot has to be a good pilot. That is the one that we place our faith in, not something I might do in the aisle seat. So, let me ask you have you personally trusted in King Jesus? Are you banking on him? Or have you retained trust in yourself and it's really what you might pull off in this life? Don't make the mistake of thinking you can do life on your terms. Placing your trust outside of King Jesus offers no refuge, no shelter from God's searing judgment. God sees the heart of each person. He could see right through Saul's external actions to his character. And the same is true of us. We need Jesus. And that leads us to a second application. Second application which comes from Samuel's statement to Saul about him going through religious motions. I think this is a key verse in chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15 verse 22, the prophet says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. See, as we've seen over the last few chapters, Saul's very good at making vows. They're often rash vows. He's good at stepping into Samuel's shoes and making sacrifices. He's good at wheeling the Ark of the Covenant out when he needs help. He needs some talisman to help him in the next battle. He will go through any motion that might help him. He'll consult the priests, even priests who have been shunted away, their whole line rejected by God. Saul could do that over and over, but he just never fully obeyed God. He didn't actually listen and heed his word. And Christians can be prone to this outward external ritual thinking as well. Now we can find ourselves thinking that if I... If I just do these things, God will be satisfied that I can please Him by just going through the motions. That's enough in my ongoing walk with Him. And so maybe you're here tonight because well your family are Christian, or it's just your tradition. You you come here every Sunday, so you know you come expecting. Well, look, if I do this for God, then maybe He'll look after me Monday to Friday. Maybe you pray on that basis. Your motivation is just that you might manipulate or get something out of God. If If I say these words to him, then maybe he'll help me. He'll give me this thing that I need or want. And if we find ourselves just ticking boxes, then we've drifted into religiosity. And frankly, people find them easier. We like doing things. We like checklists. It's much easier than doing the surgery that's needed on our heart. The problem is we can't fool God because he knows us. So we've got to give up on any actions whereby we're trying to manipulate God or please and appease him and try and gain his approval through our actions. It's all been done in Christ. And our ongoing growth as a Christian is about obedience, not box ticking. So never swap genuine faith, personally following Jesus moment by moment, by just superstitious actions. You've got to realise it's a real struggle because I think humanity, naturally, it's our universal flaw, we gravitate to superstition. And it's more prominent when we're under pressure. I remember reading the autobiography of tennis ace Andre Agassi a few years ago, when this guy was brilliant from a young age. He went on to win eight majors. He won all four of the majors. He was a child prodigy. He wrote his biography called Open because he was so clear about all the struggles he faced as well. His drug taking and all kinds of things. It was a very open account of his life. But he was somebody who you would think, with all his brilliant talent, would simply trust in his ability when it came to playing tennis. But like so many sports people, he was superstitious to the hilt. He would go through the same routines every day of a match. He would shower three times, not once, three times. He would repack his bag multiple times, have to put his rackets in the specific order. Everything had to be just so. He had to repeat certain things that he'd done the previous match. In his final uh, matches in the US Open in 2006, his last professional tournament, he writes in his book this, Darren, my coach, and I turned to each other as I went out to my second round match. Mate, he says, your homework is done. You're ready. I nod. He holds out his fist for a bump. Just one bump, though. Because that's how we started the tournament. And we're both superstitious. So however we start, we must finish. Don't you think that's ludicrous? He was going to beat Pete Sampras because he had three showers that morning instead of one. Is that how sport works? And we can laugh at that in that kind of context, but do we do the same spiritually? Well, look, I just have to pray this certain prayer and things will be okay. I just need to... Do these things this week. If I could have three quiet times in a row, I know God will really bless me this week. And it's an offense to God at that point. We're playing games. We've drifted into something that is less than heartfelt obedience to the Lord Jesus. And let's be honest, it's easy to drift into such things. But God will never be impressed by smoke and mirrors. They can never replace the real thing. True followers of Jesus will always express their faith in obedience. Look how Jesus puts it so clearly, John 14, as we conclude. Verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Could it be any clearer? And my prayer tonight is that if you have faith in Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, that you will find the true expression of your faith in obedience to Jesus day by day, that you want to pick up your Bible and read it so that you might hear the voice of God and not simply hear it, but live it. Because you know that that's what counts. You must live it out before Him. You don't need to tell me that you love Jesus. I'll be able to see it if you're obedient to His Word. And we need to spur one another on that we might be serious in this way. Because the thing is, there's just no shortcuts in living for Jesus as Lord. God's not just looking for leaders who will trust and obey. He's looking for believers who will trust and wait on him and obey Christ's word. Will you pray with me? Let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, The famous old hymn says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Lord, we pray that we might have that understanding, that you might help us. We acknowledge we're weak, and so often we can struggle to live for you, to clearly follow your word. But help us not to be complacent, not content with 80%. Help us to be those who are truly following our Saviour that his lordship might be expressed in our lives as we obey his word. Help us by your spirit, we ask, in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.